This is the Customer Equity Accelerator. If you are a marketing executive who wants to deliver bottom line impact by identifying and connecting with revenue generating customers, then this is the show for you. I'm your host, Allison Hartsoe, CEO of Ambition Data. Each week, I bring you the leaders behind the customer-centric revolution who share their expert advice. Are you ready to accelerate? Then let's go. Welcome, everybody. Today's show is about operationalizing customer lifetime value, or CLV. And to help me discuss this topic is Emmer Inom. Emmer held senior executive positions in data and analytics for over 20 years in companies such as Wachovia, Wells Fargo, Nike, and most recently, Cambia Health Solutions. So, Emmer, tell us a little bit about your background and how you got connected into operationalizing CLV. Thank you for inviting me, Allison. It's a pleasure and honor to be on your show, and we can geek out about CLV. CLV to me, I mean, most of my over 20 years of data science analytic experience really has been around understanding consumer behavior and then what drives consumers' action. And very early on in my career, we started to look at how do we quantify or measure the outcomes of any of these consumer engagement type strategies when I was at Pacovi. And in fact, even before that, I worked at a company called National Instruments as an intern. And Tim Wilson, I think you probably know him. Uh, he was my boss there. And we did some great work around like really, like really trying to understand consumer behavior and patterns around their web behaviors uh, as far as connectivity and connections to the product is concerned and then how that drives that frequency of visit and eventually purchase of the product and then from there on continuous engagement and driving of that lifetime value because that's essentially how they make money from the continuation of the usage of their software that they are making. So it's really like early foundations in that. And then I started to study a lot in grad school at that time and some of the work that I was doing for National Science Foundation around understanding uh, human behavior from psychometric evaluation perspective, understanding perceptions and attitudes, so truly going into the psyche of the human mind, right? And then game theory and stuff like that. So, so game theory, I'm a geek about that as well. And from there on, we kind of took it to my first work, first job, which was at Wachovia, a full-time role there. Wakuvi was the fourth largest bank in the U.S. at that time. After the financial crisis, it was bought by or acquired by Wells Fargo, and I was there for a longer time too. But yeah, Wakuvi was uh, considered to be a pioneer in this space, and in fact, consistently year after year, in a Michigan study on consumer experience and satisfaction, Wakuvi was always way above and beyond the rest of the peer groups as far as that concerned. And yeah, so I mean, essentially, once I got top staff into and became part of that team, that where I learned a lot about driving that consumer engagement and satisfaction and loyalty and how to do that. And then essentially the CLV became a measure for that. That's perfect. It's not often that somebody gets that opportunity to find a company that's as forward thinking and then apply the things that you might have known. Now I have to ask because game theory is, actually has been on this. We have a show coming up and I'm not sure if it'll air before or after this show, but Zach at Electronic Arts also studied game theory 
and he studied it under Shafley as opposed to John Nash. And, you know, when you talk about game theory, I think there's always such an interesting connection between what motivates us to take different actions and customer lifetime value. Is there a particular thing you love about game theory? There is. And actually, some of my work in the graduate school, and it was more around the Nash's work, and is around behavior of consumers on internet. So in online mediums, and the idea is that once they eat, when the commerce moved to the newcomers online, the aspect of the game theory became very interesting. And in the beginning, the ambitions of the internet was to have this free-flowing set of information, right? It's a very, uh, almost like an altruistic ambition. But over time, what we have seen is that consumers became less and less empowered because, yes, I mean, there's a lot of information for like your reviews and this and that available, but as far as the consumer's empowerment is concerned, it, in my opinion, actually lessened over time. Some of my work actually in graduate school from a research perspective was around understanding games where you have synchronicity or asynchronicity of information, and my early research showed that the movement was towards having less and less synchronicity so where, or essentially what that means is the entities that are companies have more information and they're more empowered versus the consumers and consumers have less information. So when you have a game that is asynchronous, that is always going to go in favor of those who have more information. That means consumers is always at the losing end of it. So if you're trying to gain to that Nash equilibrium or satisfaction where both parties are satisfied, in the end, you have to bring that transparency into the equation and trust into the equation. And without this transparency and trust, it's going to be really hard for consumers to feel satisfied. So many other e-commerce companies like Amazon has just done a good job about, I mean, they played a game of pricing and then, of course, then bringing in the service aspect of it with prime delivery and everything. So there are ways companies have done it to gain that consumer trust, but there is still an aspect of consumers still kind of feeling like, you know, we don't know what they know about us and how they use it against us. So it comes into that and it especially became very pertinent when I was at Sonic Automotive, which is one of the, I think, top eight automotive retail companies in the country, like 10 to $12 billion revenue. A very large company, but the thing is for them, the challenge has always been that stigma of the automotive industry from a retail perspective where consumers don't trust. I mean, when I interviewed for the job there and the COO said and were like I feel bad I'm like why what's going on he said well I run a company in the industry that is one of the top reasons of driving anxiety among American consumers and we want to change it <laughs> so so it was like the sense of acknowledgement was amazing, right? And then they wanted to, and what was great to hear was they wanted to bring a sense of trust and transparency with the consumers and it leads towards that engagement and loyalty by bringing data and analytics as the driving force behind all of the decisioning and then break all of those barriers. So it was fascinating to kind of hear and have that dialogue, yeah. Yeah, that really is. And that reminds me a little bit of what we see when it comes to AI. And so let me give you this question about operationalizing CLV. And because I sometimes see the person in the works as creating friction when it comes to how analytics and data can be driving a business to more optimal results, ideally making both customer and company very satisfied. So should I actually care about how to operate CLV when everything is moving to AI and maybe that'll just tell me what I need to 
do and I don't have to worry about all these little details? No, and it's, it's a good question because AI is such a hot topic these days. And you know, if you look at Gartner's hype cycle, it's kind of like peaking at the hype cycle curve there. The, it kind of it depends on what you mean by AI. I mean, it, it, AI, and I have done, I mean, my earlier background is in AI research uh, back in my undergraduate days. And so I'm going to keep it more purist when it comes to AI because I go back to those Alan Turing and, and, and all of those aspects of the AI. And as efficiently, essentially AI as an augmentation of human functions, right? Be it cognitive or physical as a way to help augment humans. And I see that more and more recently, predictive analytics, and I say predictive analytics in a broad term, like even like machine learning and to an extent a lot of the deep learning that I see, I do consider that to be predictive analytics because in a way you are using historical data and information to get gain more and more accuracy in predicting something like an outcome. So as far as the methods and methodologies that are now available to us in predicting consumer lifetime value, retention, likelihood of attrition, like the factors that go into calculating and getting a better sense for CLV, even better dimensionalization based on segmentation schemes and a much better and powerful segmentation algorithms and then the, 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 the compute power that is available to us now on cloud. I mean, it's, so for me, if we truly talk about broad-term AI and we talk about the aspects of machine learning and deep learning as a way to help augment and then get better understanding and awareness of consumer behavior and then how we utilize that to calculate and get better sense for the drivers of consumer behavior and then eventually a better calculation of CLV. So to me, AI is not really a replacement. I think we have to embrace that. And I think some companies might already be doing that. And it's actually it's really going to make it better. One point is that I would also like to make in that is that the marketplace that we are in right now, the consumers are demanding to be engaging, engaged with the companies that they do business with, right? They want them to be treated as an individual of one, right? We are in a society where everyone is a curator of their own life in a way, right? And so when we're going towards where the consumers themselves are moving to their individuality and expressing that individuality, they are also demanding companies to do that. So when you're aiming for that level of accuracy that is demanded by consumers, then you have to embrace these more advanced methods to gain better understanding and awareness of that. And consumer centricity, if we think about it, and many some of the best brands and best companies in the world that are moving in that direction, for them, and then from my perspective, CLV essentially is a currency of that consumer centricity because it encompasses and measures everything that brings it all to life in a way. So as I mentioned, all of these upsell and cross-sell and loyalty and brand advocacy and engagement, in the end, all of this is coming to drive or acquisition to the, uh, it, it's really driving that, right? And if you're trying to measure how good as a company you are at, at driving that consumer centricity and, and, and how do you measure that consumer centricity? And in my opinion, CLV can be and it should be one of that key top line metrics or a currency in a way, as I mentioned, that helps measure that. Obviously, we love CLV, but even if you take it apart into its components, such as retention and churn, you're still basically getting to the bottom line of how much do customers love you and are they willing to come back again and again, which is to just say that, hey, we have kind of a dry metric that actually measures love, measures how much people want your product and keep coming back for it. And, and I like to think about that as customer love, but you know, maybe from a banking perspective, it's less about love and more about lock-in. So can you tell us more about Wachovia, where they seem to do so well in that customer satisfaction?
satisfaction side where half the time when I look at my bank, it's like, ah, can't stand it, but I can't get away from it. Yeah. And I feel very fortunate to have been part of that experience and then working at a company back then. Of course, at that time, the bank doesn't exist right now, uh, coming out of financial crisis and Wells Fargo acquired it. But back then, we were an amazing bank. I mean, we were the pioneers in the banking on driving that consumer centricity. Our key metric was the KPI, top line KPI at the top level, company level, C-suite level that was tracked and measured and then honed in was consumer satisfaction. And everything else, all of our strategy were basically stemmed from that. We even even sales goals, how we did sales and service modeling, how we did staffing modeling, even at the branch level, where we opened branches, where branches were combined, how we even structured our data. And we did a lot of market research, too, in our analytics group. And it was it actually was really, in a way, like a way ahead of its time as a department because we had everything from uh, descriptive and analytics to predictive analytics to market research to database engineering all under one group. So we had this full end-to-end aspect, and our goal was really to understand and hone into the consumers. And the way even we structured the data was based on insights we were gaining from directly talking to consumers that consumers drive decisions, financial decisions as a household. And they wanted to be treated as household first. There were certain nuances of different products that they, consumers like to utilize or engage as an individual. And then to help support our corporate like uh, product strategy, we have to go down to that level. But so we actually even structured our database and mastered our consumer 360 data. And this is back in 2004, 2005. So it's, it's again, way ahead of its time. Yeah, we had our own in-house MDM methodologies that we utilize to create a, a that, uh, our consumer 360 data with augmentation from external data sources at household level, individual consumer level, and then at accounts and products levels. And this allowed us to essentially go up and down uh, all of those three levels to help drive consumer satisfaction and lifetime value because in the end that it enabled us to do that. There were things like retention. Like what does retention mean for a product or an account? What does retention mean for a relationship or an individual consumer level and what does relationship or retention means overall for the household and then based on the dimensionalization of the where they were from a as a household they were from a investable assets perspective their financial strength perspective their financial needs perspective and the idea was to try to create a sense of life stage so we like to do a life stage segmentation to understand at, as a household where different households were in their financial life stage so that we can even design our outreach to them with the product offering that was essentially tied to where they were in that life stage and what they needed most instead of essentially just bombarding consumers with all kinds of direct mail and an email. So yeah, it essentially drove uh, for us everything, like all of our strategy and and outreach. So there's a couple questions I have for you in there. I mean, I love the way that you're talking about the structure, but I have to ask you about the completeness of the data, especially back in 2004. Did you have to get the organization to accept that the data might not be every single household, every single consumer in order for them to accept the results on the other side? Or was it complete? So because as a bank, we owned our own consumer data. So we had the account information, product information, and consumer behavior as far as their interactions with our different mediums, like everything from their interactions with uh, tellers to ATM machines to online banking. So that 
that data from the consumer engagement as they engaged with us as a company was complete, 100% complete. When we did the householding that we built, I think the, our algorithm looked at seven different criteria, I believe, if I still remember it right. And after running through all of those seven different criteria, we were able to household well over 90% of our consumers. Wow. Yeah, it was fascinating. Yeah, it was great completion. And then the rest, uh, uh, so that we were actually very, we would very openly and transparently share what percentage we were able to household, what was not householded, what we were excluding from all of the analytics because of the data quality was not great yet. And then the data quality was hacking up over time. And in most cases, when we were not able to household were those who were very new to the new relationships and we didn't have enough information to be able to add them or combine them into an existing household or split them out. I mean, we were even getting data around or capturing things like divorces and marriages or kids growing out and then going to colleges and then so we would have to split a household when kids move out or even small businesses as LLCs are getting formed or getting split. So we were really on top of all those dynamics. And then the key driver for that was that most financial decisions are really done as a unit, be it an LLC or a small business or a household. And we wanted to make sure that we captured that in our data to be able to drive a better decisioning and, and then continue to drive that satisfaction. And one of the things we, some of the things we did in terms of the operationalization is that our segmentation, lifetime value, nexus products, like a lot of these metrics around driving the consumer satisfaction, we were the governing entity in a way in terms of what gets pushed out to the consumer. So we had a governing function in terms of if there are 20 campaigns, let's say a particular household or a customer is qualified for, we would run that through our actually CLV that we had calculated in terms of NPV and then likelihood of response as two parameters. And then we had an optimization algorithm behind the scene utilizing CLV calculated in terms of NPV and a couple of other things that then would pick that one campaign that should kind of win out. And then that's the one campaign that would get loaded to our omni-channel outbound outreach to the consumer. So not just like bring all kinds of direct mail or email or you go to the branch and then you get hammered by the tellers to uh, buy new products. So we were actually very conscious about all of those aspects because we wanted to make sure that the consumer satisfaction remained at the top of it all as a driving factor. So even in the CRM systems or the teller screen, things were loaded with a governance behind it that, that we managed. It's a really brilliant approach, Amar. And I look at it and I almost think about it as the Netflix recommendation contest where it's like models recommending models. Is that indeed what was happening? Is like you had this kind of Game of Thrones with campaigns to see who was going to win? Yeah, we actually, and we measured that we had a really robust system of gathering all of the campaign performance data that we would then bring it back in and it was then modeled uh, continuously evaluated in terms of like the consumer likely to respond by what channel, sequencing of the outbound messaging, so which consumers to start with a letter and then followed by an email. So we did a lot of that and then there was a continuous champion challenger approach that was built into it. And talk a little bit about the champion challenger approach, which people may not understand. Yeah, so the idea really is that once you build a model initially and it's trained on your some of your initial data and you basically you operationalize it and you use it, but over time, models degrade. And to ensure that our models always remain at the top in terms of their power of prediction, plus all of the data that's coming back in as a feedback loop in terms of the actions that it drove, plus additional data we were getting to augment. So we were continuously building multiple models to ensure that model that is in production 
was constantly being challenged by another model. And then over time, what you would see is that the model that is challenging the existing model starts to win out, and then we would replace it. So that way, your models are not degrading and actually getting better over time. And if you do that continuously, then your models will continue to improve and get better over time. Nice. So there's obviously a lot of richness in the Wachovia example. I want to hit on the retention definition briefly before we go on to a different example. But, you know, when you talk about what that means at each level, I think that's a question that's oftentimes not really dealt with until you're in the weeds and until you're in the thick of it. So, for example, we had one project where somebody said, hey, can you tell us who the high value running customer is? And in the process, you had to define, well, what is running? How many miles per hour does it mean to run? And what is high value at what threshold? So is that similar to what you were running into with retention? And how did you did you just kind of develop, here's how we're going to define it, and then have people reflect on that and say, yes, we agree? Yeah, so we, we did. And then, so retention, well, let me explain a little bit. So how we use retention in the, in the, the value, right? So we calculated value as far as for a, each household, lifetime value, and then we calculated it in, in terms of NPV, so it was always correct, right? So it's essentially dollar revenue to the company that that particular household was driving. And we would calculate the same thing at individual consumers or relationship level. So let's say the household, a husband and a wife and a teenage kid and a grandmother, let's just say, right? So four people in the house, they all have accounts. So we would then calculate the lifetime value of each individual and then go down to then the product themselves. So let's say that the, the teenager has a checking account, free checking account. So we would have a lifetime value associated with a typical like a checking account at that, like what is the value that to the company. Or let's say the, the, the father and mother own the, the mortgage together. The grandma has a annuity product, right? So from a retirement perspective. So as a household, we would say, let's say the father and the mother also have their own individual credit cards and debit cards and online banking, right? So imagine the number of products that you have as a household. But then you come down to the primary account holder, secondary account holder, and then you come down to who is the owner of an account, right? Who is the primary driver of a decision on an account? So that determines the relationship driver for that household, for that type of products, and then we go down to the, the accounts themselves, right? So having that dimensionality helps in the sense that when you look at total household, very robust relationship that has product in across all categories of deposits, loan, investments, and insurance, so in retirement, right? And then you go down to individuals, then you see that they cross-sell at individual level. Is it optimized or not optimized, right? And then, it, and then you go down to the account level to see do they have the right sets of products and services for the household, for their needs based on the life stage they are in from a financial services perspective. And then having a CLB metric associated with the retention at each level, what it helps us do is that they would start at the top line at the household, and if you would ma- measure and continuously monitor segment shifts with, from high, medium, medium, high, low, low, high, and medium value, like let's just for the sake of simplicity and keep it at those three levels. So we would continuously measure and monitor the movement, segment migrations or movements across those. And then we had our team that would do deep time uh, due diligence analysis in terms of if we see a movement of, let's say, 5% of households went down from a high value to less than high value. And we would immediately go down and see what drove that, right? So go down to relationship levels, like, oh, they t- they closed their uh, prime equity line of credit, right? And they moved to somewhere else or they just, something happened there, right? So we would go down to that level. So it would help us actually keep track of all the movements and learn about what were the driving factors behind migration of a household from a low to medium to high. 
high versus the other way, like degradation perspective too. And then that then helps fed into all of our predictive models in terms of understanding what drives retention. And then based on the complexity of the products and services and the type of products they have. And then that predictive analytics then fed into a lot of our outbound marketing, everything from acquisition, cross-sell, upsell, retention. So all of those strategies were then kind of fed by that. But it is really that dimensionalization in terms of the relationships and then dimensionalization matching of the value itself matching to each level. Did you have a carve out for some percentage that you just knew that you couldn't move? Like, let's say the households went down and no amount of marketing is going to move them back up because they've had a major life event of some sort. Yeah, and then we did that. And then we also looked at the households. So with our segmentation scheme that we had that brought in factors, four factors, lifestyle, their external behavior from a banking perspective. So think about it like wallet share type of stuff. And then internal behavior as far as whatever products and services they had with the bank and then how they interacted with the bank. So online banking versus were they primarily a branch, they would go to branch or the check writers versus debit card users, that type of nuances. So it was a very rich, multi-level hierarchical segmentation schema that we had built at each of those levels. And what that allowed us to do is to understand all of those nuances to be able to feed into that. Yeah. And then can you repeat your question again? Yeah. When you have something that is so complex and rich, is it hard to get internal adoption of that as you operationalize it? Do you have to simplify it in such a way to get people to take it up and use it? Or was the, your part of the organization really empowered to, it's like what this part of the organization says goes? Yeah, and then that was the beauty of how Wachovia as a bank was structured. So the analytics was set up as a COE, and analytics was set up as a COE to support senior management. And the idea was that the lines of businesses or the silos will continue to do their product-level reporting, but we were the only entities that would look at everything holistically, and we were also the, the only entity that centralized the 360 view of the consumers and were driving that aspect. So while the different product functions responsible for driving PNL at the product level. We were responsible for that consumer centricity and our stakeholders directly were senior leaders in the company. Uh, so that gave us that seat at the table with the strategist and many of them actually came from uh, top consulting firms like McKinsey and all. So there was a maturity among the leadership itself as far as awareness of power of analytics and what it can do and then how it should drive the decision. And then in fact strategy and analytics Analytics are mostly and almost always went hand in hand. So we were actually a really well embedded function there. And I've seen that over time, many companies have struggled with that. But the way it was structured at Bokovi was actually very well set up. Or there were times where we would have pushback on both sides and then we would have a really highly engaging dialogue about what data is telling and not telling and get into the nuances. But those were very rich dialogues coming from a right sort of a right approach to it, right? It was not that dry, you know, it was not a turf war. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a challenge for many companies. So I can appreciate the magic that must have been going on here for the leadership to accept the analytics and stay open-minded to 
the things that the data was saying, but also challenge it. It is, yeah. And in fact, like I've gone to many other companies from there on, and I've seen the other side of it when analytics is not empowered to drive their option. It's not set up the right way. It's not allowed to have that seat at the table. And if you run into these organizational alignment and in the cultural and political issues, data readiness issues, lack of data strategy. I mean, one of the things about the Wakuri was that we had a very robust data strategy that fed everything. Yeah. So yeah, in a way, I mean, it's, I feel lucky to have been part of an organization that I have seen the best of the best and what the best of the best can be. And I still kind of strive to attain that in a way in most of my role since then. Mm-hmm. I could see that. I think some of us have had similar experiences where you're part of a company that you don't realize is actually the best of the best. And what I find is the signature in those companies is lack of politics and incredibly smart people that are just kicking ass and taking names and because the organization works so well together. That is definitely exciting. So you mentioned two things that were signatures of an analytics organization that perhaps if we flip it upside down, that is empowered. They have a seat at the senior table, at the executive table, and they're, they have a data strategy and they have data readiness. I guess there's three yeah. there so far. Anything else you would add to that? And I would say that, and I've been, I've said it in a couple of other conversations that I've had lately, is that the role of chief data officer or chief analytics officer is one of the hardest jobs in the company. And the reason for that is that it is truly a change agent role. And most organizations, it's just human nature. We are not, as humans are not receptive to change. And when you they, they, if you look at the other roles like CMOs, CFOs, CIOs, CTOs, those are functionally deep and in well-defined roles. And in, in those roles, the authoritative figure that sits at the top can drive change or, and then drive their function, essentially with the power, with their sense of authority that they bring to the table for their functions. But the challenge for the CDOs or CAOs is that they are in the business of enabling change across all of those functions. And if the CDOs and the CAOs are not allowed to have that equity on the table with those other functional leaders and heads, then they tend to lose out. And what I typically see is that many companies don't structure or, or set up the organizations for success to begin with. When they would set up the organization, uh, the analytics function and a sub-function within other smaller functions, so you automatically don't have the voice of the data in the C-suite right with, with directly in front of the, uh, the CEO anymore or at all. It is going through another entity. And then you have these folks who uh, companies typically hire uh, highly quantitative, uh, very technical folks to kind of lead those functions and, and they're good at what they do but they have not been trained in change management and understanding the people and the process and the politics and the organizational currency which essentially is a reflection of the power centers right and then the, the, these leaders are then get uh, thrown into fighting or trying to persuade middle management and in most larger organizations like middle management are where those ideas go to die and they, so when you see consistently like uh, Tom Davenport's annual survey from New Vantage Partners around impediments to driving adoption of analytics, consistently, year after year, it's always lack of organizational alignment is number one, personal politics, company politics is number two, lack of data strategy or readiness is the three. And it's really that. And unless the CEOs and the board of directors realize that if they want to bring that transformation in the organization, the analytics 
statistics and data has to have that seat at the table at that level to be able to not only drive that change using that essentially both cross-functionally being a change agent as well as having some sort of authority to be able to do that. So are we actually saying that to operationalize not just CLV but the transformation of a business based on data, we need the C-levels to have a leap of faith that this transformation will actually pay off and by putting analytics in the senior levels and supporting the change agent that the CDO or the CAO, that that function that they need to be, they will get economic benefits on the other side. That's a big leap of faith, I think. Yeah, and I will, you have to have, right? Because if you think about it, when internet came, how many companies were just not willing to adopt or adapt to that and how many of that them still exist today just because the CEOs or the CTOs at that time or the CIOs at that time didn't truly understand the sockets and TCP IP protocols like you don't have to right but you don't have to be technical experts in those things but you have to embrace that there is something going on that is leapfrogging your competitors try it but the thing I've seen is that a lot of the companies and I've been in those conversations where members of the C-suite will say like well do something with AI. You have the data, do something with AI. Like, but what? What problems are we trying to solve for? <laughs> so there's this lack of understanding and awareness because they're like, well, everybody's doing AI or data science, so we should be doing it too. That's the wrong way to approach it. And when that happens, what I see is that a lot of the companies, when they start thinking that way, they set up, they'll bring a director of analytics or a senior director of analytics, have them get embedded in deep into some function, and then ask them, like, go find use cases, try things, build POCs. And when you start down that path, I mean, then the, the folks come in that are highly accomplished in their domains, and then they see that the data is not ready, the company is not ready, there's just such a lack of maturity around understanding of these things, and then they fail, right? I mean, 87% of data science projects fail, and or they don't come out of the POC stage, it's because of that. And then the other thing is that a lot of the companies struggle with, and a lot of CDOs struggle with just defining the spend that is needed to lead a comprehensive data strategy. It's, it's so critical to everything, and because it doesn't monetize in the short term. So if you, and then this is where the CFO, the dialogue between CDO and the CFO will tend to become a bit contentious in the sense that the CFO are trying to see like, how are you monetizing it? And then the thing is, it's table stakes. This is a capex. If you have to, this is an investment. Don't, if you're trying to measure the value of the data strategy in the short term, that's the wrong approach to it because the other company, the other competitor that is not thinking that way is the really fraud you and you will be the next years out there, right? So there's, uh, and when you come to CLV, I mean, CLV is one of the best and most easily quantifiable, measurable KPI that as a company or as a CDO or a CAO, you can bring to the table. Like, look at this. This is the value we are driving with data and the strategy. So, I mean, kind of bringing it back to it, it's to, in my opinion, CLV is a much, has much more power as a KPI than how it's typically used, which is to drive market. I certainly agree with that because it is by nature a long-term measure, although I do see people occasionally saying, oh, we're going to look at CLV and hey, we ran a campaign and the CLV changed. And yeah, you can do that, but it's kind of like driving by looking at one square inch of the map in this tiny, tiny piece when you what you really need to see is the overall perspective. Yeah. So the way I see it is CLV to run, do an analogy between weather and 
and climate. So to me, PLV is climate, which changes over time slowly. Weather is something that changes more rapidly and then more in the moment, right? But having those two kind of well integrated and then using the CLV as a barometer and as a way to evaluate and then test and understand the drivers of it and then how do you influence the weather in a way or mitigate the risks caused by business scenarios and stuff like that to make sure that over time your CLV not only doesn't degrade, but it actually continues to grow, right? So that's kind of the way I think of it that. Yeah, I like that too. So let's say that I love the idea of CLV and I want to operationalize it within my company. If I were to take specific steps, would my first step be to say, is this even possible based on the way my organization is structured? I think the first question should be, and again, it depends on organization to organizations, their top line, what is the company? strategy, right? So if the strategy really is driving consumer centricity, consumer satisfaction, number one, are they in the business with that, right? But the other aspect of that is how much of that is real versus just talk. So you could have a strat house that you build at the top level, but if that doesn't connect to your day-to-day tactics, then the point is moot, right? Then you, you are not setting enough for success. So having that sense of like awareness and ready around the readiness for that is critical or the maturity around it, right? So how are things materialized and operationalized as far as consumer engagement in the, in the current structure, etc., right? What are the gaps? What is working and not working? And if you look at the overall consumer engagement model or the journey mapping of it, at what point could CLV help drive a better decision towards driving that long-term consumer relationships, like loyalty or retention. So I think mapping of that is the next step, in my opinion, is an important aspect of it, to understand the overall strategic map, right? And then then figuring out from there on the integration points where CLV as a metric can be a driver to pivot certain strategic or tactical decisions. So if it's an acquisition fund, from looking from the acquisition perspective, like what type of acquisitions are coming in from what channel? Is it possible to potentially even calculate a pseudo CLV based on some additional in some early kind of a data that came in with as part of the acquisition, connecting it to those that are similar, right? So stuff like that. And then figuring out from there on what type of consumer did we just acquire and the likelihood of that consumer on the disloyalty map, right? Your journey. And then how do you treat them as part of onboarding to ensure that you uh, mitigate the risk of attrition within the 90 days, right? So going back to Actually, we had created a strategy called uh, 2x2x2 purely as a way to ensure that the onboarding was done right. So it was the onboarding component was after the opening of an account. Again, based on many data points and CLV and all that stuff, the outbound was based on that. And then two days after account opening, there was an outreach. And then uh, after another, so next one was after two weeks. And then a second, a third outreach was after uh, two months of account opening to essentially reduce that potential for attrition uh, within the first 90 days, right? So, and then that was also based on like which type of consumers to have this outbound sort of a checkpoints, right? To ensure that we mitigate that. Right? So, so that's one example of operationalizing it, even at your retention and onboarding component to ensure that you are reducing the risk of attrition for that potential high value customers that were just acquired and then continue to kind of move 
move them up the ladder from a cross-sell and upsell and retention and loyalty strategy. So as it starts to kind of embed into all of those different actions, or actually strategic gates, I would say, I think that's where it, it, it becomes more and more important. The systems and technologies, of course, are a critical component. So having understanding and awareness of what technologies, what systems, what products are being used by marketing and in sales and services functions and where the challenges may be. And I think especially if you get into that part of the business, then you're truly getting into the people in the process perspective. So one of the things that I've seen is that having lean coaches or Six Sigma type folks who can truly do a comprehensive landscaping of the integration points is very important. Perhaps even making some of the processes lean and then reducing inefficiencies, right? And then figuring out from there on where to integrate because you can integrate that as a metric into different processes, but it may or may not be useful unless you design a new process or augment an existing process and train people to, to use this as part of the decisioning, make it part of your playbook, stuff like that. So operationalization actually goes well beyond just having the metric calculated and integrated into a system. So that change management component has to come with it. Otherwise, it will just not get used. That is a great piece to end on. The change management component has to be there. Otherwise, it doesn't get used. I think that's a good insight, Amr. Thank you. So if people want to get in touch with you, what is the best way to reach you? My LinkedIn is really the best way, and I have a Twitter account too. But yeah, LinkedIn is where I'm generally most active, and I'm happy to continue to engage in this conversation if anybody wants to reach out and just geek out about it. And I always love talking to and engaging with peers in this space. Wonderful. We will link to that as well in our usual page. So as always, everything we link to is at ambitiondata.com slash podcast. And if you'd like to find Emmer on LinkedIn, it's www.linkedin.com slash M slash Emmer, but it's spelled A-H-M-E-R. Or you can just search Emmer Inam, A-H-M-E-R-I-N-A-M, and that will get you to him. So, Emmer, thank you for joining us today. It's been a pleasure to hear about your experience with operationalizing CLV and just the sheer vastness of the different dimensions that go into making a system fly, but the fact that it can. It can. So thank you for having me on your show. I enjoyed our dialogue and I look forward to continuing our our conversation, Alison. Thank you. Remember, everyone, when you use your data effectively, you can build customer equity. It is not magic. It's just a very specific journey that you can follow to get results. Thank you for joining today's show. This is your host, Allison Hartzell, and I have two gifts for you. First, I've written a guide for the customer-centric CMO, which contains some of the best ideas from this podcast, and you can receive it right now. Simply text Ambition Data, one word, to 31996, and after you get that white paper, you'll have the option for the second gift, which is to receive the signal. Once a month, I put together a list of three to five things I've seen that represent customer equity signal, not noise. And believe me, there's a lot of noise out there. Things I include could be smart tools I've run across, articles I've shared, cool statistics, or people and companies I think are making amazing progress as they build customer equity. I hope you enjoy the CMO guide and the signal. See you next week on the Customer Equity Accelerator.